Yeah. Well, Michael, thanks first for uh, for giving me this advantage uh, to to make this call. So, um, actually, I I probably want to give you first my the context of my situation, mm -hmm. and then I I have two questions actually to to ask. Sure. Ask you. So the context is that I'm right now in the process of interviewing for uh, position of uh, either associate or specialist mm -hmm. in McKinsey operations practice, mm -hmm. and it's, this is in the Paris office. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the previous, so I am experienced uh, hire. Mm -hmm. um, the personal information, which is not on my CV, is that I am 38 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that makes me a kind of um, more or less risk candidate, mm -hmm. as I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the experience in uh, project management services on the big infrastructure projects. Mm -hmm. uh, typical, it's like high-speed railway line or metro project in, in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I have also previous experience in the research uh, in the field of uh, energy projects for development, uh, like electrification projects in some kind of town in uh, African countries, and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I have successfully passed the first round interviews for for this operations practice mm -hmm. uh, with three engagement managers, and the feedback that I had was really positive. Mm -hmm. Basically, uh, as my interview uh, career uh, manager or interview manager, recruitment manager, here it is, recruitment manager told me is that the guys are really positive on taking me in their team. So I'm, as I understand it, mm -hmm. kind of positive feedback. Uh, my problem solving test was also quite good. I don't know the exact result, but uh, it seems that I, I reached a good score. Uh, previously, I have passed GMAT for my MBA study, so my GMAT is also uh, quite good. It's 740. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it, it serves as a kind of uh, uh, indicator of my more or less good analytical capacity. Mm -hmm. So now what I wanted to ask you is, whether you, you have some hints about what you think will be the pitch of my next and the last round interviews with the partners, uh, even though I understand that they probably will get my profile only 15 minutes before the interview, mm -hmm. but still uh, taking into account my previous results and the fact that I am interviewed for operation practice as an experienced hire, what they will want to test, which types of case interviews probably they will uh, address, and which on which uh, points I should I should make a particular stress. Okay, so good good questions. I mean, I, I, congratulations on you know getting so far in the French offices. It's I always tell people that Paris office is a pretty hard office to get an offer from. So to make it past first round, second round, you know, which so little negative feedback. That's pretty impressive, right? So so let's focus on final round. What do you need to do in that final round, right? Yeah. And there's mm -hmm. two things you need to do in that final round. The first thing is you need to demonstrate an understanding of operations. 
And when I say operations, I'm going to explain what that actually is, but I'm going to get to that in a few seconds because it's a little bit different from what people think operations is. And next, I want to talk to you about the, 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 sort of the top four or five things you need to, to do in that interview, right? Mm-hmm. Take into consideration your age, your background, uh, the fact that you know, you're, a f- for lack of a better word, a foreigner, now living in Paris, now living in France, and you, you, me- you mentioned a metals background as well, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm gonna so I'm gonna talk about those two things because they're two separate things you need to do. So let's talk about what McKinsey means when it says they do operations work, right? Because you need to understand the philosophy of McKinsey operations. Okay. Now, when McKinsey talks about operations, they ref- they are talking about one concept only: productivity, right? You have to mm-hmm. understand that the way McKinsey views any operations product is very simple. You have a set of inputs, right? Input costs like material, labor, you know, information technology, and so on, right? All those inputs are going through a process, be it a manufacturing process, a conversion process, if you will, to produce some outputs, right? Make sense? Yeah. Now, in yeah, a McKinsey sure. operations case, in any McKinsey operations case, when the, when the operations partner is planning that case, that is the image he has in his head. He's, he's thinking, we've got all these inputs, we've got a set of manufacturing processes or conversion processes, and we've got the outputs. So our job as the operations team is to do two things. We either have to find a way to reduce the amount of inputs going in, right? or we have to change mm-hmm. the conversion process. The outputs, okay. the operations team does not have a lot of control over the outputs, if you, if you actually think about it. Because the outputs, let, let, let's take a classic example here, right? Let's assume, you know, let's assume you are, uh, the, the, the McKinsey Paris office has been invited by Airbus to help them improve operations practices for the new Airbus, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in, in that particular engagement, which is an actual McKinsey engagement, the operations team is going to go in there and they're going to say, okay, we have very little control over the products being made because that's, set, that's being set by the strategy team, that's being set by the chairman's office and so on, right? Yeah? Okay, yes. So the final, the, the outputs, the team has little control over. What, what those outputs are going to be is been set by the chairman's office and probably the McKinsey strategy team as well. And they're going to say, hey, you're going to build this kind of plane with this kind of fuel efficiency for this kind of long-haul travel, right? The operations team has to then figure out how do they produce that at the lowest possible cost, at the highest possible quality. So in your head, what you need to do is you need to imagine this. You need to imagine this, right? Productivity equals output the the value of outputs divided by the cost of inputs mm-hmm. and as an operations team member you are working with the denominator right mm-hmm. and, and that's how you need to think yeah. about operations because that's how McKinsey thinks about operations they're always maximizing the denominator it's always about the denominator and the process to convert the denominator to the numerator, which is the outputs, right? 
Yeah, so the minimizing the denominator. Yeah, so so the McKinsey operations is looking at the min at the denominator and also the the manufacturing process, because you have all the mm -hmm. inputs going into the manufacturing process, and from the manufacturing process you get the outputs. Now, now I'm just thinking about McKinsey, you know, uh, cases around the world, operations cases, and and they all follow that same pattern. You got inputs. You got to you got to minimize it, and when you say minimizing inputs, that's a big field because minimizing inputs can be as something as simple as reducing procurement cost, right? Okay. To something as complicated as redesigning your entire R&D function to produce better ideas for manufacturing, right? Okay. It can also be a very common area of of the denominator is looking at processes. Re redesigning your processes so that they are shorter, faster, and cost less money to run. So, lean, uh, lean manufacturing, yeah? Yeah, so, so you know, you've heard the term business process re-engineering, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of operations work is business process re-engineering. It, it's a very big part of operations work. You can't get around it. But in your head, when you're approaching an operations problem, always remember it's productivity equals cost of out uh, value of outputs divided by cost of inputs. And you need to okay. reduce the cost of inputs and you need to improve the, and you need to change the manufacturing process. So always remember you need to change the manufacturing process and change the input structure. And if, you, if, you, if you're thinking in that way with any problem, then you understand strategy in operations, right? That's really, really interesting as a as an explanation. Yeah, but it makes sense, right? It's quite obvious. Yeah, sure, sure, exactly. Now, 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 think about that. If anything doesn't make sense, I'm happy to talk you through it. But let's let's talk about you and what I've seen in your profile, right? Now, mm -hmm. when a McKinsey partner is going to look at you, I, I'm going to I'm going to highlight three things that you need to three things that you must do. And three things that you need to consider, okay? Okay. Now, here are the three things that a McKinsey partner is going to look at. When a McKinsey partner meets you, the first second they meet you, what's going to go through their head? The first thing that's going to go through their head is that 38 years old, is he mature enough? And he, can he be on a faster path to partner? That's the, what they're going to consider, right? So okay. let me just break that down for you. You are 38 years old, and they want to make sure that if when you are working, now remember to be, you know, when I was a, I was a very young principal, but I made principal really young. But most principals are going to be principals around the age of 32, 33, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be 38. Now the question is, how are you? What's your maturity level relative to everyone else at McKinsey? Do you come across mature enough, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is this trade-off between age and maturity. Because you're older and you're going to be coming in at a relatively lower level, you have to show much more maturity. Okay. All right? and, and they want to see that maturity. And, and let me explain what maturity is. Maturity is this ability to... You know, the best way to explain maturity is, is, is when I was a principal and I was a young principal, you know, I'd go into meetings with senior people, CEOs of, you know, I also have a metals background like you and a mining background. You want to be able to sit in the, in the room with the chief financial officer or the CEO of Lonman or whatever the company is, right? Do you know Lonman? 
no. Lundman is no, one of man. the world's largest platinum manufacturers, right? So you want to be able to sit in a room with the CEO of Lundman and not be intimidated by him. Have a conversation with him. You know, the signs of, of maturity is when you can sit back in your chair, right? Sit, the ability to sit back in your chair and speak slowly and confidently and use body language and use your hands to explain things. So when I am meeting someone like you, right? Let's assume I was still a partner and I was meeting someone like you. How would I judge them? I would look at them and say, how do they sit? Does Sasha sit forward? Does he look like he's scared to be there, right? That's the first thing I'll ask myself. Or does Sasha sit back in his chair? Does he look comfortable? And is he pacing himself? Is he rushing? People, when they, when they rush, when they speak, it's a lack of maturity, right? Okay? Mm-hmm. Or is he speaking slower? Is he pacing his words? When I ask him a question, is Sasha taking the time to think about it for a few seconds? Or is he doing what many young people do, which is just jump in, and speak very quickly. Does Sasha use his hands to speak? A very big sign for me of confidence and maturity is when people use their hands to speak. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, exactly. When you can sit back in your chair, exactly, when you can use your hands to speak, it's a, it's a big sign of maturity for me, right? Now, once you show maturity, that's good. The next question the partner is going to ask is that, can I see Sasha being someone who can get to partner faster than most people? Now, here's the key thing. You can't take the same time to get to partner as a 27-year-old from INSEAD because the 27-year-old from INSEAD has more time, right? Mm-hmm. You have less time. So you need to almost show them that you are very mature a very deep thinker. So they're saying, okay, Sasha's mature, he's a deep thinker, he's got a lot of confidence. I can see this guy with the right kind of training and the right kind of support in making partner in a faster path. At the end of the day, they're assessing your ability to be a partner, not to be an associate or a specialist. Always remember that. When a partner sits mm-hmm. down with you, he's not thinking, are you going to make a good associate? No, he doesn't care about that. He's thinking, are you someone in six years is going to be my peer as a partner. Can I see that? Now, you have one big benefit that, so, that 27-year-olds don't have. Do you know what that big benefit is? Well, I know what I want. Uh, it's l- related to that. Let me tell you what the big benefit is. When you're 27 and 26, you are naturally not mature, right? Mm-hmm. It's very hard for a 26-year-old or a 27-year-old to imagine what a partner wants and to and to demonstrate that they have no idea right as a 30 as a 38 year old you've worked in industry for a long enough time at a senior level to know what senior people act like and you can show some of that in your interaction with the partner so you do have one advantage in that sense you have a lot of experience working with senior relatively senior people to know how these people engage and you can bring out some of those mannerisms in your interview, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the way I speak, for example. I don't know if I speak that well, but you notice I take a lot of time 
to get you to understand things. Yeah, definitely you make these pauses and uh, you don't use the rubbish words uh, to, to fill them up and so on. Yeah, so what you need to do is you want to mimic that style, right? Mm -hmm. What I'll do for you is I will create a special folder today with your name. I'll okay. load up some of the sessions we have with Kevin Coyne, the former head of strategy at McKinsey, training people so you can see the way he trains people. Okay. So you can. Now he, he was the head of strategy for McKinsey Worldwide. He was the global leader of strategy. So he was. He was probably more senior than some of the people you're going to meet in France. But you can listen to the way he does things. So you can mimic his style. So you want to mimic my style, mimic his style. It's all about. It's all about demonstrating understanding, right? So, so let's just recap. The first thing you got to show is maturity, and the ability to get to a faster part to partner. Okay. Uh, Michael. Yeah. The question which arises here is, I still uh, interviewed for an associate position. Yeah, so that's fine. You are interviewing for an associate position. Kind of discrepancy if I have a poster offer near to be partner, but I mean... There won't be any discrepancy. Pretension? No, this is no pretension. Because, because of your age, you are 38. You you need to show that you already picked up some of the skills that other people are still to pick up. It's not pretentious to act like a partner. I mean, you, all I'm asking you to do is to be mature, to speak very clearly, and to show that you can have a peer a peer level a, a same level conversation with a partner. It's not pretentious. It is highly regarded in management consulting to have that skill. Mm -hmm. And we're not asking you to speak about things you don't know about. We're not asking you to act very, you know, like you're a senior person. We're asking you to show maturity, to show confidence, and to be able to communicate very clearly. All people who do well in management consulting have that skill, right? Yeah. So you're not going to be pretentious at all. You're going to come across very well if you can do that. That's the first thing. The, the second thing you've got to do, which is very important, is that if I look at your resume... You worked for a company that may not be well... I mean, you worked in the metals industry, right? You worked in R&D. You then worked for project management for a consulting firm. The work you did may not be well known, right? It's, it's possible okay. that they don't understand... The people interviewing you, the partners interviewing you may not understand the roles you had, the titles you had, and the seniority you had, right? Or whatever that is. Now... Don't take for granted that when someone reads your resume and it says senior consultant for this project in North Africa, they understand what a senior consultant did. They may not understand that, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's your job to explain to them what you did as a consultant and as a senior consultant because, you know, McKinsey doesn't have the term senior consultant they have something called senior associates or whatever, or in your case, you know, senior specialist. So when you are talking about your role in industry, it's very important for you that the, per, the, inter, the partner understands exactly what you did as a senior consultant. So in the partner's mind, he can, he can think, oh, when you say senior consultant, this is what you mean. So don't take it for granted people are going to understand 
your career. You, you have to spend a few minutes or seconds just explaining it to them. Or if they ask you questions about your background, make sure that people understand exactly what you did. Okay. Right? It's very important because, you know, a very good example of this is that, you know, when, when you hear the term analyst, you, you, you think a person's very junior, right? Uh -huh. But if you're an analyst in the military, it can be a very senior position. Right? Yeah, it must be person in the headquarters. Exactly. I mean, you get analysts oh, reporting oh, to the president oh. of the of the. You can you get analysts reporting to the president. That's how senior they can be. So whenever I tell people, whenever you work in an industry that's not well known, take the time to just explain what your title means because it may not be clear to the person that's interviewing you. So when you say senior consultant, when I first read that, I kind of assumed it was a junior role. Then I read your resume. I went and Googled the company you worked at to try to understand the projects, and then I got a very different view of things. So my second piece of advice is make sure that people understand your resume very well, okay? Okay. My third piece of advice to you is that balance is very important in consulting firms. We like to hire people that we know are very intelligent. And here's the key thing. They are not intelligent because they worked all the time. They are intelligent because they are smart. And the way we prove that is by seeing that they did other things besides studying. Right? Mm -hmm. So what I want to see is that you are a person who has a balanced lifestyle outside of work. I want to know what you do outside of work. You've listed it under additional information here, you know, table tennis, tennis, reading, mountain climbing and so on. But I don't want you to ignore that in the interview. Bring it out in the interview. The okay. interviewer needs to know that you are someone who's good at what they do but also has a separate life. Because the reason why it's important to have a separate life is firstly, it shows me that you're naturally intelligent. You're not studying all the time, right? But the other reason is because creativity comes from doing other things. McKinsey is very big into creativity. Creative ideas comes from doing other things which you then bring into management thinking. And we need to see that you are exposed to things outside of work. Make sense? Yeah. Sure. So just to recap, the three things you must do in a case is maturity, which will show a faster path to partnership. Make sure that people understand your resume. And thirdly, make sure that you show you do things outside of um, cases, uh, outside of studying. Now, I'm also going to give you some other advice here. These are considerations you need to remember. You've mm -hmm. got to get them to like you before the case starts. What a lot of candidates do is they, they assume the most of the decision is made in the case. It's not true. Right? When a partner sits down with you, in the, first, the, the first time a partner sees you is already judging you, right? Okay? Yeah, that's true. Even before he's spoken to you, as he's walking up to you, he's looking at you and deciding, is this someone that I think is going to be a McKinsey partner in five years? When you stand up, when you shake their hand, when you talk to them, the kind of chit-chat you have, the office conversation before the case starts, that's very important for a partner. In fact, I would say that's more important for a partner than the actual case itself. Because I'm just thinking to myself, right? I can think to myself, I would bring someone to a nice room, we'd have some coffee, we'd talk. And in the time before I start the case, I've already decided if I've liked this person or not. If I don't like the person... I'm not going to really take such an effort in the cases, right? 
Because I think, mm-hmm. why should I go through any of the cases in detail? I've already decided we're not going to hire this person, right? But if I like them, and I think that this person is really mature, really smart, comes across really well, then I would take the time to have a longer discussion with them. So you've got to get them to like you before the case begins. Very important. Don't think that things went bad before the case and you can turn it around in the case. That's not how it works with a partner. With a partner, if you mess up before the case, and even if you do a good job in the case, he's still going to say no to you. Mm-hmm. Because a partner is mature enough to understand that great consultants are not just good in cases, but they're also good in the way they interact with people. Okay? Yeah. Now, that's very important. So, so don't neglect the time before the case. It's a really important time to build a connection with the interviewer. Now, if you do that well, then the case becomes important. Because if, if you do the first part well, the partner is saying, you know what? Sasha is a smart guy. I like him. He definitely has a future. Let's see how he does at cases. Now, my, my advice for cases is as follows. I'm just going to give you some high-level cases. Yeah, high-level advice for cases is expect anything. People always tell you McKinsey uses a certain style of cases. Uh, McKinsey does this. McKinsey does that. McKinsey does this. The point is you don't know the background of your partner, right? So he could approach a case in a very different way. So my advice to you is that even if something doesn't look like it's a case, treat it like a case. Be very analytical when you're answering the questions, okay? Okay. Don't assume that just because the case hasn't officially started, I can say whatever I want. Take the time to think things through. Slowly build up, okay? That's the first piece of advice for cases. My next piece of advice is don't jump into solving cases. Even when someone asks you a question in a case, take two, three seconds to pause and think before you answer. So you want to you take a few seconds to, to think to yourself before you speak, but then do it, create a habit of thinking out aloud. So don't be one of those people who needs to write down something on a piece of paper first before you can speak. Get comfortable talking through with the partner your thoughts. Because that's the way partners do things with, with clients. We don't write out stuff on a sheet of paper, mail it to a client and say, what do you think? No. We'll, 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 we'll meet a client over dinner or coffee at their offices and we'll think out, we will talk out, we'll brainstorm with them what the ideas could be, right? And I think you want to be comfortable doing that. Okay? Uh-huh. The other thing that McKinsey partners are very big into is understanding the relationships between things. So the, you notice in a McKinsey case, they'll give you a lot of data, right? Yeah. But they want you to understand the relationship between the data points and the implication of the relationship. So you know, in, in a case, the partner may give you something, they may tell you this is what's happening, and you say, okay, we know this is happening, we know this is happening, we know this is happening, and I think this is the relationship. And I think this is the relationship, this is the implication of the relationship. And because of, um, because of this implication, I think this is what's going to happen. And I think that this is the kind of analysis we need to do. If you can talk out those things, the partners really like it. Mm-hmm. The other thing you want to avoid, um, Sasha, is avoid the habit of repeating questions. You know, a partner gives you a question and then you repeat the question. 
I don't like it. I think it's a horrible way of doing things, and partners don't like it as well because it it makes it look like you don't like you can't understand things and you don't understand what's happening and you're just stalling for time. The only time to repeat things is that if you're not sure, if you genuinely are not sure, it's okay to confirm things, but don't repeat the entire question. It it just makes it. it look, the point is, you always want to act as if you are the equivalent, the partner to the partner. You want to act like them. And a partner would never repeat a whole question just for the sake of doing it. He would take the time to methodically explain something, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, so don't get in the habit of just repeating things for the sake of doing it. It doesn't come across well. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of the best people I ever interviewed in my entire career and I hired they were not the best people at solving cases, definitely, but they were really mature about it. You know, I'd have a, they'd, they'd have a conversation with me. They'd be talking how they're going to solve the case with me. They would be, they would not be trying to solve the case by themselves and then tell me what they're going to do. They'd be working with me to solve the case. I felt like I was solving the case with them. And that's how the partner must feel. He must feel that, hey, Sasha is so comfortable being here that he's happy to solve the case with me. So don't solve the case for the partner, solve it with the partner. And partners like that. They like it when people involve them in the case solving process. Now, here's, a, here's another thing I'm going to give you that's very counterintuitive. Let's assume that you are doing something wrong in the case, right? Okay. A partner is never, ever going to let you continue down that path for 10 or even 5 minutes. He's never going to let you go down the wrong path, okay? Don't worry and think that, oh, what happens if I start doing the wrong thing for 5 minutes and I make a mistake and I waste 5 minutes? That's never going to happen. I can tell you that right now. If the, if the partner thinks you're going down the wrong path, he'll stop you very quickly and say, I think you're doing this incorrectly. Maybe there's a different way to do it. So So what you need to realize is that every time the partner is giving you information and working with you, you are doing something right. Because if you are doing something wrong, he wouldn't allow you to do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's a very important insight. Because what happens to a lot of people in a case is they are so worried that they are doing the wrong things is they become distracted. They start thinking, hmm, what if I'm doing the wrong thing? Maybe I should go back and check this. Now, it's a very simple check. If the partner's allowing you to do it, you should, you should you should realize you are doing the right thing so you don't have to worry as much, okay? Okay. It's very important because when you're doing a case, it's very easy to start worrying that you are doing the wrong things and it becomes distracting for you. You start um, uh, not paying attention to the case and so on. But in the final round interview, they don't let you do that. They will mm -hmm. stop you. If you're doing the wrong things, the partner will tell you right there, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense, so maybe let's redesign the way we're going to analyze that. So, so you can take comfort in knowing that if you're allowed to do things, you're doing the right things. And just work with the interviewer. Work with the partner. Talk to him. Work with him to solve the case and you'll be fine. Do you want me to repeat? Okay. Does it make sense? Does all of that make sense to you? Yeah, they, these all five points are... Are really, really good. Yeah, so, so those um, are the, the, the high-level things. Any questions you have from there, any, anything else you want to discuss, you know, based on what I've given you? Yeah, so 
you explain me the understanding of the of the operations, how they are understood at McKinsey, and so basically it all turns around the idea of productivity, mm -hmm. uh, of improving the productivity. Uh, so, will McKinsey interviewers and especially partners expect me to know the ideas of productivity improvement of I don't know, lean pro business projects, redesign, Toyota uh, production system. Because I have never worked in operations per se. I worked in the project management and on big construction projects. Or they will just expect me to know my field of of expertise, what is planning, how you uh, structure big projects with the help of the different types of plans and programs, and they will accept that I don't have any experience in the industrial operations. Okay, very good question. McKinsey does not expect you to have detailed knowledge about lean manufacturing, just-in-time manufacturing, and so on. They don't expect you to have that, right? What they do expect you to have an understanding of is the concept of productivity, the, the way I explained it to you, which is easy to understand, right? Mm -hmm. They expect you to just have that high-level understanding of productivity. They expect you to understand operations problems at a basic level. So they don't expect you to be a supply chain expert to understand all of the different techniques, no. They expect you that if they give you an operations problem, you can understand what the problem is and what's driving the problem, but you don't have to you don't have to have specific knowledge about concepts in productivity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even within your industry, they don't expect you to understand all of the technical terminology. No, they don't care about any of those things. What they want to do is they want to strip out all of that technical knowledge and they want to see if you understand what drives productivity and value in your industry. That's it. In a large project, all they want to know is that, do you understand how to structure a large project? Do you understand what drives productivity in a large project? And that's about it. In, a, in, a, in, a, in another way of saying it, they want to see if you understand the first principles. Do you know what first principles means? The first principle? Yes. No. Do you know what fun fundamentals means? Yeah, of course. They want you to understand yeah. the fundamentals of your industry, but okay. that's it. I see. See, in, in a McKinsey project, in any McKinsey project, whether, let's, let's put it this way, right? Let's assume that McKinsey, there were two McKinsey teams. One is helping um, EDF, right? Let's assume one is helping EDF develop a better way to build nuclear reactors, right? Mm -hmm. And there's another McKinsey team helping Renault, Renault, right? The French car manufacturer to build better cars, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at what those two teams are doing, they are doing the same things. One team is going to go out there and catalog all of the processes, all of the costs, all of the steps, all of the labor manpower requirements for EDF to build a nuclear power station, right? Mm -hmm. They're then going to look at all of the manufacturing steps to build a nuclear reactor and they're going to look at, okay, 
if EDF wants to build this kind of nuclear reactor, how do we rearrange the manufacturing process and how do we rearrange all of the inputs to produce the nuclear reactor, right? The Renault team is going to do the exact same thing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now the reason it's called fundamentals is because we ignore we ignore the industry jargon technical terms and we attack the problem from the fundamental basis and the fundamentals are the same across any industry does that make sense yes yes i agree that on the the most general level the fundamentals are indeed yeah. the same and that's what mckinsey wants you to so do they want you to f understand a problem at its most fundamental level they don't okay. mind if you, uh, they don't care if you don't understand the big, you know, the industry issues. If you understand it, it's good. But what they don't want, what McKinsey doesn't want you to do, and this is very important for them, is they don't want you to go into an industry and say, hey, I worked in this, in I, wor I worked in metals for 15 years, and I know exactly what to do because I worked in metals for 15 years. If you do that, they will fire you. They okay. want you to go yeah. into the metal sector and say, you know what, let's, forget this is a metals company and let's look at what the problems are at a fundamentals level, right? Okay? Yeah, so they don't want me to replicate the previous experience however successful it was. Exactly. Because that's not basically the, the question that the client wants McKinsey to answer. Yeah, no one is hiring McKinsey or BCG to go out there and replicate what was done in another client because every client is different. Okay. And the only way to understand the client's issue is to, is, to br is to reduce it, distill it, bring it down to the fundamental level. But that said, that said, if you have the ability to understand something at a fundamental level and understand the industry issues, but not, but not listen to this carefully, not, un not allow industry issues to bias or cloud your fundamentals analysis then you are very good, right? Mm -hmm. If you, for example, let's take the metals industry. Like, let's assume you can go into ArcelorMittal, right? The big steel company, right? Mm -hmm. And tell them, look, you know, I understand how you manufacture steel because I've got 15 years of steel experience, right? So I can speak your language. But by speaking your language, I also understand that if you analyze the problem differently, we've, we've developed some new ways of looking at it. What happens? Well, by showing ArcelorMittal that you speak their language, you get their respect. Right? Mm -hmm. But by approaching the problem from a fundamentals level, you make sure you don't fall into the trap of thinking about problems the way everyone else does. What everyone else does is they'll say, I'm an expert, I've done this for 15 years, so I'll do whatever I want without thinking it through. And that's the biggest problem most people have. If they do something for 15 years, they assume they're experts in it. What McKinsey does is they'll say that, okay, even if you do this for 15 years, Sasha, that's nice, but we still want you to have the skills to approach it from a fundamentals level. And if your fundamentals analysis agrees with what your industry knowledge is telling you, that's fine. But if your fundamentals analysis disagrees with what your industry knowledge is telling you, then you've got to go with the fundamentals analysis. Okay. 
So what you need to do, Sasha, is in that interview, you've got to analyze things on fundamentals basis, right? Okay? Mm-hmm. And compare it to what your knowledge of metals is telling you. And say, okay, you know, this is what the analysis is telling me, and my experience in metals tells me the same thing, so it makes sense. Or you could say, this is what the analysis is telling me, but my experience in metals is telling me something different. Why is it telling me something different? But don't ignore the analysis. The analysis is always takes precedent over your background knowledge on metals. Does that answer your question? Yes, that was really comprehensive, I would say. Yeah, so for example, when I go and speak to, um, you know, my background is resources and metals, I'll go speak to a mining CEO. And the only reason the guy is speaking to me because he knows I understand his business, right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if I told him things that he already knew, why would he want to hire me? Yeah. He's not going to hire me. So I've got to be able to understand his industry, talk his language, so it's easy for me to, to engage him. But I must be able to analyze his business from fundamentals and tell him th- see things that he cannot see in his business. Yes, so to, to summarize this idea is that the previous industry experience helps to gain the sort of credibility mm-hmm. in front of these guys who, are, who spent 15 years in the industry, or not, not 15, but 30 years in the industry. Yeah. But then you apply the structured analysis approach, uh, which doesn't necessarily take into account the your knowledge of this industry, but it takes into account the, the the normal way of analyzing any business problem like it, it is done in the consulting. Exactly. The no, no, just, you are right. I just want to add something there. Even if, you, even if you take into account, even if in the fundamentals analysis you take into account your knowledge of metals, right? It must not bias your analysis. Mm-hmm. You must not you must not change your analysis to suit what you think you know. Very important, right? Yeah. So let's assume that for 15 years you did something in your in your industry and it worked. And then you go into a McKinsey project and a client wants to do exactly what you did for 15 years. Now, you can't tell the client, hey, I did this for 15 years in my client, therefore you need to do it at your client. You cannot do that because every client's different. So you must analyze that client and see, test with fundamentals analysis if your idea will work. And if the fundamentals analysis says your idea will not work, then you need to see why the fundamentals analysis is saying that. Don't just assume it's wrong. But always go with the fundamentals analysis first. And use your background as a guide, as a very good compass to tell you where the problems are. For example, because of your knowledge of metals, you may realize that in most metals companies, the biggest problem is fabrication of metals, right? Mm-hmm. So when you get to a client, you develop an hypothesis saying, hey, you know what? Uh, my experience shows me that the biggest problem is fabrication of metals, so let's develop an hypothesis to support that. But if you develop that hypothesis, you need to go in and test that hypothesis with fundamentals analysis. And if by testing the hypothesis, you realize that at this metals company, 
fabrication is not the biggest problem, then you don't go with fixing the fabrication. You go with fixing whatever the analysis tells you the problem is. Yeah? Okay, yes. Yeah. It's a very data-driven approach to doing things. So, you know, that that's one of the biggest problems, you know, we have when I was a partner as well. You know, you get a lot of people from industry who want to work with us. They'll, you know, they'll come to us and say, you know, I was the CEO of this, or I was the chief operating officer of this, and I've got 20 years of experience working in you know, this pharmaceutical company or this manufacturing company or this automotive company. But what those people forget is that, yeah, we, 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 we like their industry experience, but we are worried that they will use their industry experience to ignore the real problem as well. And only through analysis can you corroborate something is the real problem. Your industry experience will give you some clues about what the problem is, but they're only clues. Mm -hmm. You still have to prove it. Okay. Any okay, other questions, that's, Sasha? That's clear. Anything else? Um, well, uh, I think that that's, that's really answers the, the major part of my questions. Yeah, what I'm also uh, going to do for you is just one other thing I'll do for you. We have one of the other mentors we have used to be the head of strategy at Bain and Company, right? Um, mm -hmm. Bain is pretty good at operations as well. I'll also load one of his training sessions so you can see the way he explains the way Bain does strategy, right? Uh, operations, sorry. But what you'll see is that the way he explains Bain doing stra operations is exactly the way McKinsey does operations. There's mm -hmm. no difference. He'll be using different words, but when you think about it, he's saying the same thing that I'm saying and the same thing that Kevin is saying about operations. So it'll give you a, a better, it'll give you a different way of looking at operations. But I, I'll load that up for you. If you don't get it in the next twin, 12 hours, send me a reminder, okay? Okay. Fine. Sorry, I interrupted Perfect. you. You were going to say something? Well, Michael, I just wanted to thank you because it, that, that's really, that's really wonderful to have accepted my uh, my demand uh, for for this coaching and uh, session and really to giving me this insights from the from the high level point of view of what are the most important points to to take into account I'm happy to help I mean if you have any questions afterwards you just need to tell me if you want to speak or send it to me via email okay